John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, code for John who wrote this, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own tombs. And then all the way at the end of the chapter in verse 31, you should read it. But these are written... That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We find in John's gospel the fact of the resurrection in these first ten verses. And then we see the power of the resurrection in verses 11 through 29. The apostle John states the purpose for writing his gospel it's so that sinners would believe and obtain eternal life in verse 31. But there, there in verse 9, he adds not just about the fact of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, but in verse 9 he talks about the necessity of the resurrection. He says, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Pause. Think about that for just a moment. Why must he rise? Well, Jesus is going to make good on his claims to deity. Five times in the course of his ministry, Jesus has predicted not only his own death, but the manner of the death and the location of the death. He predicts how he will die. He predicts that he will rise from the dead. He predicts that he's going to appear to the disciples. The word of Jesus is at stake. But so is the testimony of the Father in the Old Testament which predicted the Messiah or the Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. In Psalm chapter 2, in Psalm chapter 16, in Psalm chapter 20, in Isaiah chapter 53, there is a repeated revelation that the Messiah is going to suffer, the Messiah is going to die, the Messiah is going to come back to life. And so the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are certainly a promise kept. But I want to tell you something this morning. If that were the only thing, 
that would be reason to rejoice. But if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then Christianity is a farce, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 15. If Jesus really isn't risen from the dead, then he is a liar, and the Father is a liar, and the apostles are deluded, and the martyrs were deceived, and every believer remains in the darkness of sorrow and despair and hopelessness. In John's gospel, the resurrection is presented as fact and power and necessity, but that fact and that power and that necessity is presented in the context of sorrow, perplexity, unbelief. How would you describe your soul this morning? What's going on inside of your heart? Are you full of sorrow or joy? Are you hopeful or hopeless? Do your doubts outweigh what you used to believe you thought were, you were certain about? You see, these post-resurrection appearances that Jesus is going to have, he's going to appear to Mary, and he's going to appear to the ten. He's going to appear to Thomas. He is going to appear to a woman who loved him. He is going to appear to disciples who had hoped in him and then lost all hope. He is going to appear to a disciple plagued. With unbelief. Who's lost all faith. One in sorrow. One in fear. One in faithlessness. Look what it says. When Jesus appears to Mary. It says but Mary stood outside the tomb. In verse 11. And as she wept. She stooped down. And she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. Sitting one at the head. The other at the feet. Where the body of Jesus had lain. When, then they said to her. Woman. Why are you weeping? She said to them. Because they have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. I want you to note something. When it says she turned around, her face turns from the presence of the empty tomb and the angelic beings. And she's looking away from the grave. And she doesn't know that it's Jesus in verse 15. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. The stone is removed in verse 1. 
Peter and John visit the empty tomb. You'll remember that John outruns Peter, probably because Peter just had a knee replaced. No, I'm just kidding. That's probably not what happened. He probably is an older guy, and the younger guy outruns the, the, the older guy. John looks in, but he doesn't go into the empty tomb in verse 5. Peter goes in. He sees the handkerchief or the napkin or the cloth that was used to cover Christ's face folded neatly on the side. John believes in verse 8, but we're left with the distinct impression that the others do not believe in verse 9. There are three kinds of evidence when it comes to spiritual matters. There's the evidence that God gives in this world. Number two, there's the evidence that God gives in his word. Number three, there's the evidence that comes from personal experience. It makes perfect sense to me that there are people who say, look, I wanna believe, but is there some evidence to support what you're saying? You'll remember that Mary Magdalene comes on Sunday morning early. It's still dark. She sees that the stone is rolled away from the tomb. She runs and comes to Simon Peter and John. It would appear that Mary stays after Peter and John have left and gone home in verse 10. She lingers in verse 11. And sometimes it pays to wait around. Sometimes it pays to wait and think about what it is that you're looking at and what it is that you're seeing. Mary stands outside the tomb weeping and she stoops down and she continues to weep. She continues to sob and sorrow as she peers into an empty tomb. She sees two angels, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And I want you to pause for just a minute again and ask yourself an important question. How does John know that? How does Mary know that? How do they know where, which position the head was at and which position the feet were at? Almost certainly it's because Mary had been there before. She had followed Joseph of Arimathea. She followed Nicodemus. They went to this tomb. She saw his body lay in this tomb. She saw the stone rolled in front of him. When the angels say, why are you weeping? Look, even if it's a supernatural being, it's probably never a good idea to ask a girl why she's crying. Because <laughs> you may not want to know the answer. But let's just, again, pause for a moment and entertain the question. She's a woman in sorrow. She is in pain and she is in grief and we are wrong if we think anything other than she's coming to this place expecting to find a dead body. And I want you to think about what's happening, the dynamics that's happening in the text. Mary turns her face from the angels 
because she would rather see the dead body of Jesus than the heavenly face of an angel. She sees Jesus, doesn't know that it's Jesus. She fails to recognize him. And there's one verse in, there's one word in verse 15 that explains her sorrow. In verse 15, look what it says. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And look at this closely. She, and note the word, supposing him to be the gardener. Supposing him to be the gardener. That word supposing is pregnant with the reality of believing something that just simply isn't true. How many Christians are miserable this morning, empty this morning, full of grief and sorrow this morning, supposing that they have no right to be filled with joy, to experience God's grace and his mercy Suppose is a word that you use to describe someone who believes something that simply isn't true. And when Jesus speaks her name, she recognizes him. She calls, he calls her by his name. He knows who belongs to him. In John 10, remember what it says, my sheep know my, my voice. Mary's gently reminded that... That she can't hold on to Jesus. She starts to cling to him. And people have wondered. Well why, why is she clinging to him? And I got to tell you. The answer is fairly simple. Her savior has risen from the dead. And she doesn't want to lose him again. But in the unfolding drama. That's called Christ and Christianity. The father has sent the son and the son is going to heaven and he is going to send the Holy Spirit. The reality is that our Jesus is going to go to heaven and he's going to be seated at the right hand of the father. It's interesting to me. Mary tells the disciples that she's seen the Lord she becomes a messenger of joy in verses 17 and 18. This is the first gospel message. Mary's meeting with Jesus turns her from a woman in sorrow to a missionary. And then we see Jesus appearing to the ten in verses 19 through 25. It says the same day at evening when the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled note and underline it for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord so Jesus said to them again peace to you as the father has sent me so I also send you when he had said this he breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven if you retain the sins of any they're Retained. 
put yourself in the story, it's clear that the disciples are unconvinced by the empty tomb. They are unconvinced by the testimony of Mary Magdalene. They are unconvinced by the testimony of the angels. Can you imagine? I know some of you dream about it. Some of you think about it. Some of you wish that you had a way back machine or a time machine and you go, if you could go anywhere, if you could go anywhere at any time under any circumstance, where would you go? And you go, I would go to Jerusalem on Easter morning morning there's an empty tomb there these guys don't believe it they're meeting behind closed doors look what it says for fear of the Jews they are frightened they are afraid Jesus comes and stands in the midst and says to them Peace be with you. He comforts them and shows them his hands and his side in verse 19 and 20. He commissions them and then he invites them to become spirit-filled witnesses in verses 21 through 23. He reminds, John reminds the reader that Thomas called the 12 isn't with them in verse 24. Where it says now Thomas called the twin was not with them. Thomas is called Didymus, which means twin. And I think for good reason. I, I suspect that he was literally a twin. But I also suspect that he was skeptical. And he, of course, has a real relationship with those unbelievers and skeptics even to this day. Guess what? We live in a world where Thomas isn't the only person who doesn't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Again, I want you to think about this. Like the other ten, he's rejected the empty tomb. He's rejected Mary's testimony. He's rejected the disciples' report. Look what it says. The disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe you. And then he lays out the requirements for faith. Unless I see his, in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 25. Thomas says, yes, I know him. Yes, I walked with him. Yes, I heard everything that he said and I witnessed his miracles and I still want proof. And look, Jesus appears to Thomas in verse 26. Look what it says. And after eight days, another week has gone by plus a day. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Shalom, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. John takes us in this journey of the resurrection appearances and he says, fast forward eight more days in verse 26. The disciples are gathered together again along with Thomas. The doors are shut. Jesus appears and says, peace to you. Jesus indicates to Thomas that he's willing to yield to Thomas's hyper-skepticism and unbelief. Jesus says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This is interesting to me how so many people refuse to believe that Jesus is God. John calls him God in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas calls him God. God himself calls him God in the book of Psalms. And so here we have this repeated testimony. Peter says he's God. Paul says he's God. Thomas says he's God. God says he's God. And then there are people who go, but I don't believe he's God. Well, good. I don't know what to tell you. Manifestation in verse 26. Invitation in verse 27. Adoration in verse 28. Observation in verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It would appear that Thomas drops the demands. Jesus shows up. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus shows up to a woman who's filled with sorrow. To a group of men who are without hope. And to another person who is without faith. Because perhaps you're wondering the same thing. I wonder if Jesus could show up and talk to me in my circumstances, in my difficulties. I want to pause again just for a moment and just remind you of something. If we learn anything at all from the crisis of faith that Thomas experiences, listen carefully because this is important. We are better off voicing our unbelief than remaining silent. I want to let that sink in for just a moment particularly for you parents who are terrified of a child who comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I don't know if I believe that this is true. I don't know if I believe that the gospel is true. I don't know if I believe that the Bible is true when it says that Jesus came back to life. I don't know whether or not it's true. And I'm going to suggest to you, it's better off to let them voice their unbelief than suffer their unbelief in silence. It's okay to say what you really feel and to say what you really think. But I'm going to go one step further. Thomas allows Jesus to bring him to a place of faith. Thomas is going to allow Jesus to bring him to a place of faith and belief. So take comfort. You're not alone in your doubts. You're not alone in your sorrows. You're not alone in your struggles. The answers that Jesus gave Thomas 
He gives to you. Thomas, stop it. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus says to the religious leaders in his own day, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. So we see the, re- the resurrecting of the love and the, and, and the hope and the faith. I, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Mary is the last person to leave Calvary's cross. She's the first person to approach Christ's empty tomb. We're told in Mark 16, 9, quote, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons, unquote. Dr. Luke remembers, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had come out seven demons in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. I don't know if you had struggles growing up, I've told this congregation on more than one occasion. In high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. You might think, Did, were there stuff like that in high school? You know, I, I knew that there was most likely to succeed and best personality, but I didn't know there was like most likely to go to hell. In my high school class, people got together and they prayed and they go, who is the person least likely to go to heaven? And my name came up repeatedly in the conversation. There was a reason why she's the last person to leave Calvary's cross and and the first person to make her way to the garden tomb. She loves Jesus. She's forever changed by Jesus. And I'm sure there's... No delicate way to put this. There's some stigma associated with being demon-possessed. Do you think if you're demon-possessed, it's going to have an effect on your family and your friends and your relationships? See, some of you might be thinking, is he trying to make a joke? Some of you might even be thinking, I don't even believe that there is such a thing as demonic possession. But some of you know better. Some of you know about the invisible forces that manipulate you and fill you with fear and terror. You know about the invisible forces inside of your heart pushing you in one direction or another. She loves Jesus. She's been forever changed by Jesus. She's been healed by Jesus. When Luke says that she was demon-possessed, what do you think the doctor... If you think, well, maybe it means that she was broken. But I'm going to suggest to you that we all know broken people. We all know people who have struggled with suicidal ideation. People who want to kill themselves. People who hurt other people. People who for whatever reason are in this constant chain of of self-destructive behavior. But I'm going to suggest to you that however severe her brokenness was, it was delivered by Jesus. We're not told what the demons made her say and do. But we're told that she was supernaturally delivered from her tormentors. 
And here's this woman who's been supernaturally delivered from perhaps the most difficult thing that a person might face. She's sobbing outside of the tomb in verse 11. She looks into the tomb. She sees the angels, the head and the feet. But here's the point. She loves Jesus as much as a person could completely love another person. But she's seeking a dead body. She's not looking for a risen savior. She's not looking for a person who's come back to life. She isn't looking for a savior who's alive. She's looking for a dead friend. She's looking for someone who's dead. Whatever power they might have had, they no longer have that power. Whatever power that they might have had, it is gone. She wants to know whether or not if he is gone, if she's going to have to return to the life that she used to have. Her whole being and expectation is to find a dead body. Just like some of you. You come and you wonder whether or not it's true. Christians say that Jesus rose from the dead, but is it true? She was living as the world lives, a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And she hears a voice that sounds somewhat familiar. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Look what it says. She's supposing him to be the gardener said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. This is love offering the impossible. Overcome with grief and despair, she is willing to say, look, wherever you took the body, wherever you've hidden the body, whatever abuse you've heaped on the body, just give him back to me and I will take his dead body to the place where he belongs. Full of tears and full of sorrow, she looks away from the empty tomb into the face of the of a person that she can't even begin to recognize. And then Jesus speaks to her in verse 16. He speaks a message in verse 17. And that's the moment, that's the moment that she recognizes Jesus. And I want you to think about this. Think for a moment. Mary recognizes Jesus not by sight, but by sound. She hears his voice. Isn't that interesting? I'm wondering what you're listening to this morning. I'm wondering if you might stretch for just a moment and wonder whether or not you can hear his voice. She says, my master, she's given a new commission. Jesus says, may, yao, aptao, stop clinging to me. Mary reveals her love and then the new commission. Jesus says, you're going to go. And look, look what, what he says. He says, go and tell them 
Tell my brethren, say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Part of the point of the message that Jesus says is, let go. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to go to heaven. I am going to ascend to my father. But this isn't going to be an ascension that leaves you high and dry. Tell me. Does this Resurrection Sunday find you in sorrow or joy? Because I'm here to remind you that for those of you who are experiencing just a little sense of emptiness and sorrow, that the Lord wants to resurrect that love inside of your heart. And you'll remember the disciples are huddled in fear of the Jews in verse 19. They're certain the religious leaders are coming for them. They're certain that they're going to be tried, that they're going to be executed, that all they are are going to be the recipients of further abuse and further persecution and further fear. It's still Sunday in verse 19. And Luke tells us that there are numerous reports that Jesus has come back to life. Mary says, Jesus has come back to life. The women say, Jesus has come back to life. Two people on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and another person, has come back and said to them, Jesus has come back to life. And then Jesus shows up in a locked room. I think that that's interesting. The reason why I think it's interesting that the text points out that it's a locked room is because so many people, they come sometimes to church or sometimes to the gospel or sometimes to the message and their heart is locked shut. They come to church not really expecting a resurrected Savior. And certainly not a Savior who's going to show up in a heart that's been locked away, full of fear. I think some people are terrified. Not just of life, and not just of circumstances, but they're terrified of Jesus. They're terrified what might happen if he might show up? And what if he says, I am real and I love you and I'm willing to forgive you and I want to make your life a different life? When Jesus says, shalom, y'all, I think it's because the greeting was meant to bring comfort and put them at ease. Jesus doesn't come saying some sort of weird thing. Jesus comes like he normally comes. He speaks like he normally speaks. This isn't a spirit. This isn't a vision. He shows them his wounds and it must have moved them, allowing each and every one of them to touch him. They're convinced that they're not participating in some sort of group hallucination or group vision or seeing ghosts. This is the, the body of Jesus, the same body that died on the cross it's come back to life and the disciples are transformed from the lowest depths of fear and hopelessness to the highest heights of hope in verse 20 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is interesting to me because in verse 20, the word translated saw, ido, means way more than just simply see. It means to look at something in such a way that you get it. You see it for real. You see it for what it really is. And you see it for what it really means. That's the meaning. They see and they understand. He said it all along. They, they see and they understand, oh, you said you were going to die. Oh, I get it. You said you were going to come back to life. Oh, I get it. You said that you were going to appear again. Oh, I get it. And so the disciples finally understand. And like Mary, they also receive a commission. The commission begins with peace. It begins with a peace that passes all understanding. And note, Mary receives the commission and the disciples receive the commission. But it begins with peace because you can't receive this commission. Unless you've experienced the peace of God for yourself. Do you know him? Do you love him? Have you experienced the peace of God and peace with God? The father sent the son. And Jesus says, in the same way that my father sent me, I'm sending you. Pause again. How did the father send the son? Prophetically? Empower for real with a specific message in the hopes that people are going to hear and understand and believe the message and be changed by it? What if I told you that that's exactly how God is sending you? He's sending you in power and prepared by the Holy Spirit. No wonder Paul calls himself and his companions ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. So tell me something. Does this Resurrection Sunday find you in fear or hope? And of course, Thomas. Thomas had not been with the disciples when Jesus appeared. But have you ever stopped to ask the question, well, where was he? Where did he go and why wasn't he with them? Like so many today, Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had come back to life. Why wasn't he with them? He was unconvinced by the prophecies. He was unconvinced by the empty tomb. He was unconvinced by the message of the angels. He was unconvinced by the testimony of the women. He was unconvinced by even the people who were closest to him. In verse 25, it says, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. In the original language, it's imperative and continuous. The implication being, they kept saying repeatedly, no, we've seen him. We have seen him. We have seen him. And Thomas goes, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Just like some of you, you've got a repeated message from your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters. No, Jesus is real. He's come back to life. He's changed me. He's forgiven me. He's reconciled me to himself. Thomas is so committed to his own unbelief that he is unwilling to move from his unbelief was it guilt 
because he had forsaken the Lord in his hour of need? Was he withdrawing from the fellowship of the rest of the disciples because he felt like he was such a loser and such a failure? I know that sometimes you feel like that, even though you don't want to say it out loud. You think that Jesus is grossly disappointed in your lack of faith. Thomas argued against the facts. Empty tomb, no body, eyewitness testimony. He argues against other people's experience. Mary saw him. Peter, James, John. Think about what is going through Thomas's mind. Mary says, I saw him. He's alive. And Thomas says, you're crazy. Peter, James, John, we saw him. You're nuts. Unless I see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands, I'm not going to believe persistent doubt always delays blessing. Persistent doubt will frustrate and compound guilt. It will make disappointment even further a bigger problem, exclusion. It's going to result in pride, a refusal to acknowledge the facts and these fierce demands. So what is at the root of his unbelief? The root of his unbelief is he has a false picture of Jesus. Clearly, Thomas concedes that Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great miracle worker. He's a great prophet. He's a great man. But all of these perceptions still make it clear that he's only a man. Because human beings prefer human beings. They don't want a Lord. They want a human being who's maybe at least a little bit depraved like they are. And that the sacrifice of Jesus is noble, but it's not necessary. We don't need to follow Jesus. We don't need to follow him in every little detail. We don't have to follow him in everything that the Bible says. We're free to follow God based on our opinion and perception of what kind of a God he may or may not be. And then Jesus confronts Thomas with the truth because Jesus knows every human heart. He knows every stubborn, willful, irrational, committed, skeptic. Jesus knows where and when to strike at every heart. And he reveals that he knows everything about Thomas's unbelief and Thomas's demands. Just like Jesus might show up in your life. And he reveals that he knows everything about the emptiness, everything about the sorrow, everything about the hopelessness everything about the unbelief. He says, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and don't be faithless, but believing. Jesus extends his hand and invites you to touch him. 
By the way, how far and how long will you nourish and cherish and feed your unbelief? How long will you reject the truth? How long will you allow your life to continue in this course of lovelessness and hopelessness and faithlessness? But look at Thomas's confession and conversion. And there's an even greater lesson. It's to believe without having to see the evidence or proof in verse 29. Jesus said, blessed or oh, how happy are those who have not seen and yet believe because the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You might be wondering if God will manipulate you into doing something that you don't want to do or to believe something that you don't want to believe. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is going to come back to life. He's going to come back to life to make sure that you understand that he keeps his word and he keeps the Father's word and that the Bible is true. But Jesus comes back for that and even more. He comes back to life for those who are in love but who are still full of sorrow. For those who are experiencing fear and hopelessness. And for those who struggle with a persistent, recalcitrant unbelief. So how can we be assured that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead? Well, think about what you know. We have the fact of a real death. We have the fact of a real empty tomb. We have the fact of a disappearance of a body. This body disappeared either naturally or supernaturally. You have to come up with an explanation even if you don't believe. And so, we understand that we have something else that we have to account for. And that's the transformation of a woman so fundamentally changed inside of her heart. To the ten, so fundamentally changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of a determined unbeliever who's transformed. Think about what you're reading. Sorrow to joy. Despair becomes hope. Unbelief is all of a sudden transformed into faith. And now we understand verse 31. That these are written that you, that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that believing you might have life. Abundant life, eternal life, life full of love, life full of hope, life full of faith. I was hoping I would find something to say. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, my heart goes out 
to that man, that woman, that young person who feels like they're in a perpetual state of sorrow, of guilt, of hopelessness, of faithlessness. Lord, I pray that this Easter wouldn't just be another message about a Savior who comes back to life, that it would be that, but so much more. Lord, I pray that you would invite them to do what only you can do, to believe and receive life, to confess their sin, to receive the grace and the mercy that's found only in Jesus. And like Mary, and like the ten, and like Thomas, they would find a way to believe and receive all that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead.